The Electronic Intifada. Intifada. Intifada Electronic. Intifada Electronica. This is the Electronic Intifada Podcast. In Oakland, I'm Nora Barrows Friedman. You're listening to the Electronic Intifada Podcast. We turn to the Gaza Strip. Just this past week, Man News Agency reported that a serious fuel shortage in Gaza has put lives at risk inside hospitals. Health services in a children's hospital were suspended due to a lack of fuel for its generators last week. Even at full capacity, Egyptian and Israeli electricity grids, together with Gaza's sole power plant, fail to cover the Gaza Strip's energy needs and only provide energy to Gaza's inhabitants for eight hours each day, Man reports. The news agency adds that the Israeli blockade, which limits the amount of fuel allowed into the Palestinian territory, has also impeded the capacity to repair Gaza's damaged infrastructure in the wake of a devastating Israeli offensive in 2014. Gaza's power plant has not run at full capacity in years, as the enclave has experienced severe electricity shortages over the years, exacerbating already dire living conditions in the small Palestinian territory, leading the UN in 2015 to warn that Gaza could be uninhabitable by 2020. Joining us to talk about what's happening in Gaza is journalist and author Mohammed Omar, Currently on tour across the U.S., sponsored by the American Friends Service Committee, Mohammed is the author of Shell Shocked, On the Ground Under Israel's Gaza Assault, which was published last year and is his eyewitness account of Israel's attacks on Gaza in 2014. Mohammed is the recipient of the Martha Gellhorn Prize for Journalism, just one of more than a dozen journalism awards he's received for his work. And he's currently a visiting research fellow at Harvard University. Mohammed, we've been friends now for, what, 10 years counting? Uh, it's, it's so good to talk to you again. Thanks for being with us on the EI podcast. Well, thank you for having me, Nora. Um, yeah, I, I really enjoy, uh, again, having the beautiful introduction, which is nowhere taught at the today's journalism school across the United States. <laughs> That's really good. I remember Flashpoint um, just 10 years ago or even over when I was um, reporting for you from the Gaza Strip. Yeah. And uh, it's really nice to be connected again. Yes, thank you. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Well, thanks for being with us. Um, and uh, and it's been you know nearly a decade since Israel implemented uh, the ongoing crushing blockade and closure on the Gaza Strip, as you've been reporting. You've documented the socioeconomic and psychological impact that the blockade has had on the people of Gaza. What kinds of conversations are you having about Gaza and the blockade while you're on tour across the U.S. right now? What what are people saying, and and what are you what are you trying to convey? First, let me start by the second part of your question of what I'm trying to convey. What I'm trying to look at is really or to tell people about the daily life in Gaza. I'm actually focusing more on the humanitarian crisis, about the daily living, about the situation of electricity, water, and the blockade, and everything related to human aspects. What I'm trying to do is to unpack the story which you get about Gaza if we are lucky that it's been reported. Um, and bring it into a context, providing um, some more details by giving um, uh, basically faces to the numbers which you see in the media. We've been talking about people like thousands of people who are injured and killed, but we don't know who are the thousands. There are among them those children, uh, mothers, uh, fathers, um, um, you know, elder men, and each of those people have different um, personalities and uh, different hopes and uh, 
And so what I'm trying to do is to bring these faces and confront the American audiences with it. And so far, the reaction has been really quite good, particularly after the the U.S. election. I'm, I'm actually not very um, pessimistic because I think really after the U.S. elections, um, many Americans have started to really get to say, well, we will need to get active and we need to get more together to face this injustice. So the reaction has been quite um, good, I would say, in, which is in contrary to what I have um, received back in 2006 and 2007, where I often be hackled in, in canvases across the United States. This does not happen anymore, really. Even though I try to go to audiences that do not want to listen, still um, people have nothing to say. You, you know, you can't justify killing the children uh, and making um, a whole population um, just um, go through a, a very systematic way of, of living, basically, where Israel decides what the Gazans should be eating, what they should be wearing, what they should be having, what, where, should be, where they should be traveling, and how and when they can travel and get in and outside of the Gaza Strip. Full control of the Gaza Strip. Uh, we're talking about two million people who are living in the Gaza Strip who uh, are living in dire humanitarian crisis. As you've said, the United Nations have warned by 2020 Gaza is unlivable. But I can tell you one thing which you can take out of this podcast, that in 2017, Gaza is unlivable already. What is daily life like? You know, what, what can you tell people that you meet uh, on, on tour in the U.S. about how you go about your day in Gaza under these conditions? Well, when you go about day, well, I, mean, I actually try to focus on the resilience, which is very important, you know, um, in terms of uh, how to deal with the power uh, cuts in Gaza, you know, like having an extreme situation, having 18 hours of electricity blackout per day, which has been pretty much common in the last few years. So I'm talking about the stories of resilience, of how people are managing to, to survive and waiting to, to fill the gasoline uh, or fuel to, to run generators as an alternative. And, you know, Gaza has been living on running generators in hospitals for now 10 years. And, you know, these generators in any other country, they would be used in case of emergency for a day, two, three, four, but not for years. Uh, so Gaza is turning what used to be um, or what is often used as an emergency into some daily uh, routine, really. Um, so that's the type of story I talk about. I talk about the, the, the conditions that the people in Gaza are living under. And I also talk about the resilience of people, like uh, people who want to continue to live despite of the um, bad situation and also the, the occupation and the constant bombardment and the the feeling that there is a new war which is about to start. And you, we live with that constant fear because there is this uh, psychological warfare that Israel play now and then to, uh, to intimidate the people uh, in Gaza. Um, so, I mean, that's the type of things that I basically um, focus on. Talk about like bread and making bread. Talk about falafel. Uh, uh, for instance, which is something uh, many people relate to. Any family would relate. Any family would relate. How would people be surviving without having um, running water inside the house? <laughs> how would you feel when you uh, 
don't have water to flush the toilet, uh, for instance. All these type of stories are so important that um, people start really to relate to them. So what I'm trying to do is to make the story of Gaza more human and to bring faces to the numbers which we often get on the media. And I'm also trying to do in this tour is to go across the universities across America and to see especially journalism students and tell them it's time that we do journalism in a different way. I think it's time that we really start rethinking of how we have been reporting about events, especially in the Middle East. It's not us and them, it's not numbers, and it's not that uh, uh, they and uh, theirs and ours, no, it's more than that. We used to think a few years ago about refugees that they are too far from Europe, remember that. But within weeks, within months, they were able to get to Europe. Now they are able to get to the United States. They are, we will be going to Canada and they will be going to Australia. They will affect our life if we don't improve the situation of those refugees. You know, they are not far away from us. No, you find them everywhere because we are the source of that. Because the media has not been fair in reporting on refugees and constantly refer to them as, as numbers. But we really need to, to dig deeper into that. And uh, there is a need for journalism schools in the United States to think more thoroughly of how we do journalism practices on the ground. It's not about commercial media. It's not about official statements. It should be more about what matters to us, the voices of average people, just people like us. That's the voice of journalist Mohammed Omar. Mohammed, you also went to the U.S.-Mexico border uh, just recently, just a couple weeks ago. Why did you go? Why was it important for you to speak to communities uh, there? You know, this was one of the most um, rich experiences that I ever had. And I tell you why, because it relates so much to what I'm seeing. Well, first of all, there is a debate that's going on across the United States that uh, a company is, is going to be building a wall between Mexico and uh, and uh, the United States. And I was very surprised that this company is the same company that destroyed my house uh, in uh, in Rafa when they built the wall. And it's the same company that built the wall is going to be building a wall, a wall here. So I want to understand from these community of how much they are affected by that. And, you know, I heard so much stories that are identical to what is happening in Gaza, the segregation of families, the separation of lovers, and not allowing people to uh, to commute or to uh, get in and outside. Um, that is stories which were very um, heavy to take, really, because something like that, as much as it's important to see, I also need to convey a message to the people in the Middle East, you know, that something like this is also happening. Um, as well. And that company, of course, is Ilbeat Systems, uh, an Israeli company that has contracted with the U.S. Department of Homeland Security to provide uh, construction of the wall and also the militarization of the wall at the U.S.-Mexico border. That's right. Can you talk a little bit more about um, the bond between uh, the Palestinian community and uh, indigenous uh, and migrant communities here uh, in the U.S. and and really with this impending presidency uh, of Donald Trump, 
what what people are talking about and how how that wall that's already there um, is is being talked about in terms of um, international solidarity. Well, you know, I have seen the same one as actually the Palestinians who are um, who are besieged by walls. I mean, with the, there is a huge difference, of course, here that Mexico is Mexico. You know, it's it's, it's open borders. You have uh, uh, the government, and you have uh, the system is is up and running. Uh, in Gaza, uh, that's not the case. You know, in Gaza, it's 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 locked from everywhere. It's like people are pocked inside a territory of 23 um, miles and you know they they are confined to that place they can't leave they can't get in and outside but i have been able to get some um um similarities of of basically stories which i have reported as a correspondent for many years about people who wanted to see uh, each other families who are uh, shouting across the border because they want to pass the greetings. These things I have seen as a child growing in the southern part of the Gaza Strip in Rafa. And um, I'm able to see that. That was like as a child, and I'm now 32, and I'm seeing that in this big country, the United States of America. I'm seeing the same story of people. Um, one would not be expecting um, this to be happening in 2016, 2017. But it is happening. So there is a lot of parallels here to draw from the experience of the Mexicans um, and the indigenous community as well. And, you know, I actually talked to a lot of the Mexican uh, community leaders, uh, especially in San Diego. And I find there is a lot of sympathy to the Palestinian coast. A lot. They relate so much to what I had to say during my lecture tour. And they have given the most useful feedback um, to, to not only... Um, you know, um, offer similarities, but also, you know, um, offer ways forward of how they deal with the challenges that they are facing. I, I think it's really, it's, it's really important that we are able to, to get this message and convey, you know, like um, a family who would be having a, a dinner over, uh, over Facebook. Imagine that, you know, a family who's having a dinner one who is on one side and others on the other side, and there's barely half an hour between them with car, but they can't be together. They just get tired of having dinners over Facebook. That's the same story as Palestinians in Gaza, who cannot see their relatives in the West Bank, who cannot see their relatives even on Rafah side, the Egyptian side and the Palestinian side, when they happen to be from the same family. Mohammed, finally, what's on your plate now? What, what kinds of stories do you still have your eye on um, and how can people read your work? Well, I'm, st- I'm actually, one thing which I have started to enjoy doing is social media. I love Twitter and social media, so I tweet quite a lot. You can follow me at MoGaza, and I'm also uh, doing a lot of work on, uh, on Facebook, and I try to focus on stories that connect people. Like I, together with the American Friends, we've started a campaign, basically, uh, which is called Gaza Unlocked. So you can just um, um, write Gaza Unlocked on social media and find all the photos. So what I try to do is to ask Americans what they learn from from my talks about Gaza and share these stories back home. Because I think for many, many years, Gazans have always been on the end of 
receiving um, reactions from the world in, in actually um, either silence or missiles that hit them during the wars and conflicts. Um, and it's time that the world reacts to Gaza in, in, a, in, in, in a way to express how they feel about the siege and the global citizens to also offer support through social media. So that's what I'm really up to. Um, I continue to uh, pay more attention to stories in Gaza and Syria, and uh, the, the region is in a big mess, and we really need every voice right now to make sure that the next few months uh, the U.S. Uh, foreign policy does not uh, go off the top. Yeah, well, we're all, all going to be watching that really carefully, of course. Um, Mohammed Omar, we're so grateful for your work, and we hope that people will come out to hear you speak as you continue your tour across the U.S. People can go to AFSC.org, that's the American Friends Service Committee website, to see your tour schedule through December 13th. And actually, your final stop on the tour will be in Chicago at an event co-sponsored by the Electronic Intifada. Also, people can follow you again on uh, Twitter at MoGaza, M-O-G-A-Z-A. Mohamed Omar, thank you so much, and, uh, and we'll speak to you very soon. Good. Thank you. Thank you, Nora. Thanks. And we'll be right back with an interview with another journalist and author, Jordan Flaherty. Stay tuned. All in Silas, bound in jail, ain't got money for to go to bail. Keep your eyes on the prize. Hold on, hold on. Paul and Silas began to shout. The jail doors opened and they walked right out. Keep your eyes on the prize. Hold on, hold on.
I'm delighted to be joined today by Jordan Flaherty, a journalist and author and an all-around activist, someone who's been on the front lines of struggle for the long haul. He's written a new book called No More Heroes, Grassroots Challenges to the Savior Mentality, out on AK Press. And Jordan, we're so glad you're here on the Electronic Intifada podcast to talk about it. Thanks for being with us. Thank you. I'm so thrilled to be here and such a fan of Electronic Intifada. Yay. Um, well, let's get right into your book. You talk about the role of movement activists in a myriad of different forms and venues, looking at how activists move within struggles uh, from Palestine to New, to New Orleans, to First Nations lands, to the Black Lives Matter movement, to looking at the role of journalism itself and many, many other struggles, all through the lens of challenging the perceived saving of oppressed groups. Can you talk about why you wrote this book, what it aims to do, um, and uh, and really why you were moved to write about this? Well, as a journalist, I try to do my work in a way that's accountable to social movements. And one question I ask myself is, what's my role as a white, cisgender male journalist reporting on these movements like Palestine or Black Lives Matter? And one answer that I've come up with and that other people have suggested to me is that I can speak to other people coming from positions of privilege and critique issues that I've seen come up in my own life and work and in the work of other people with privilege. So um, this is a, a book from somebody who's coming from a place of privilege to other people who are dealing with privilege in, in all the different ways that might manifest to talk about ways that we can be part of movements without trying to lead the movement, without trying to save people, without trying to um, take over and not listen to what people want. What does it look like um, to be a savior? What, you, uh, how are activists, how do they fall into that trap of, of trying to be a savior? I think coming from a, a position of privilege, speaking for myself, I feel like, and, and I know this resonates with a lot of other people, that I was really raised that, you know, that as a white male that I have knowledge even when I'm not in a situation. And, and, you know, I actually, I saw it in Palestine, I think is one of the first times it, it really uh, came to me. You know, I, would, uh, I was there in 2002, 2003, 2004, and saw all these activists coming with International Solidarity Movement. A lot of them were really great, but a lot of them, like I, I actually heard people say, we're coming here to Palestine to teach Palestinians about nonviolent resistance which obviously is the most absurd thing ever, right? I mean, this yeah. is a, a it, the Palestinian movement is so incredible in, in its range of resistance. And of course, you know, what we saw in the, in the first Intifada, so many different kinds of nonviolent resistance, but people would come to this situation, not only not knowing anything about what they were coming into, but convinced that they had something to teach these people that they hadn't even, they didn't even know, you know, anything about the people that they thought they were coming to teach. And I saw a really similar dynamic in Katrina where I saw these white volunteers coming to New Orleans. And, you know, I moved to New Orleans myself a few years before Hurricane Katrina. Um, I saw these, these white volunteers coming to New Orleans and they were saying, you know, we're here to teach people about organizing and bring organizing to New Orleans. And this was a place of so much incredible history of movement and organizing against white supremacy that these white people are going to teach them about organizing was shocking. And so it's something, it's this theme I've seen again and again. But you know, the book is not just about the negatives, but also I really try to lift up positives. And and I think, you know, I, I don't want to fall into a politics of disposability of saying people have have done this and we throw them out. You know, and so I talked to a lot of people that have been 
you know, had this savior mentality in the past and really changed and, and are no longer doing that and talk to them about how they came to realign their work and how they came to change. People that started with Teach for America and then realized the really problematic role that Teach for America was having and started actually organizing against Teach for America. And so I really try to uplift really positive examples while critiquing uh, these negative traps that people fall into. We're speaking with Jordan Flaherty. His new book is called No More Heroes, Grassroots Challenges to the Savior Mentality. Jordan, what's uh, how does the boycott, divestment, and sanctions movement, um, the the movement that is led by Palestinian civil society, um, how does the BDS movement interact with uh, with grassroots activism on the ground in Palestine and around the world? What do you see? Um, how do you see its importance here? You know, I think I think it, it's just such a great counterpoint to uh, it, to the other model of change, which is this this model of change of working within the system. And, and boycott, divestment, sanctions is first of all, being accountable to the people on the ground, right? Palestinian civil society has asked for this. And it's this movement that people from around the world can plug into, no matter where they are or, or who they are, they, they can plug into it. And its demands are, are not these vague ideas of, of more, you know, dialogue or this so-called peace process, but real systemic change, you know, and it has really clear demands to it. And, uh, it, you know, it's something that I saw in, in so many of these successful movements in Gina, Louisiana, which was, uh, uh, people may remember a major civil rights struggle in 2007 in Northern Louisiana, where 40,000 people from around the country came and marched, um, to, to try and, uh, free these, six young black men who were facing life in prison for a school fight. And because of that struggle, those, those six young men all ended up going to college um, instead, of, instead of prison. Um, but that was a movement that was led by the people on the ground, by the families of, of, those, of those six high school students. Uh, but people from all around the country could plug in and support that movement and could support those demands. And, you know, we're ultimately able to change something. And so that's you know, there's no one way to look at how a movement is successful or, or what's successful. And there's a lot of different voices in this book and people come from a lot of different, different perspectives. But one of the common themes is accountability to the people most affected, um, a way that you can build a broad-based movement that still is accountable to those demands that will bring systemic change to those people most affected. And talking about accountability, one of my favorite chapters in the book is the one on mainstream journalism, um, how journalists should be and are not being accountable to the people uh, on whom they report. You look at the role of journalism through the story of uh, <laughs> the New York Times columnist Nicholas Kristof. Um, how does journalism contribute to saviorism, if we want to call it that? And and uh, and why did you look at, at how Kristof um, operates at the New York Times um, and and you know, his, his role in, in, uh, being accountable or not being accountable. You know, I, I feel like you can't talk about the savior mentality without talking about Nicholas Kristof. He's such a, a key example of this. He is a, this model of the person that, um, that, that rushes into this situation that, um, never listens to the people on the ground that is really prioritizes voices of white American men, even if he's telling a story in Afghanistan, um, that has no interest in 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 real systemic change. Uh, he, he's this 
perfect dynamic of it. But, you know, it's something that I saw throughout in journalism. And in the book, I talk about some of the struggles I had working in, in Al Jazeera America and trying to um, get stories through there about, about systemic change. It, it's, you know, I think that there's this idea that, that journalism is neutral because, uh, um, you know, that, that, that's some kind of neutral value, but it's never, it's never neutral. There's always decisions that are made at every step of the way that are shaped by the, the journalists and by the editors and, and by the organization. And I think to try and pretend that those decisions aren't being made is the biggest lie of all. Um, and, and finally, you know, you mentioned this before, but what keeps you hopeful as an activist and as a journalist, uh, you know, as someone who's been in the resistance trenches for years? You know, I feel like I learned so much about hope and about steadfastness from Palestine and from Palestinians and, and from the time I spent there. Uh, the, the way that people have struggled against this brutal military occupation for, for decades and still maintain not just a hope, but really a kindness and an openness. You know, I don't have to tell you that um, there's very little hospitality anywhere in the world, like the hospitality that you'll you'll get in Palestine. Um, and uh, the the different ways that people have struggled and resisted. Um, you know, just the way that sometimes just even studying in school is a form of resistance in, in Palestine, as the Israeli occupation forces try to stop them. And, it's a similar struggle, you know, every colonized people, I think, has ha have had to fight so hard and, and so strong. And there's so much inspiration to be gained from looking at these movements all around the world and, and from what's happening right now with Black Lives Matter and with Standing Rock and immigration rights movement and so many other movements happening in this country as well. Jordan Flaherty, where can people go to follow your work? You can go to jordanflaherty.org. Uh, and that will have information on getting this book as well as uh, some of the TV reports I've done for Al Jazeera and elsewhere and the, um, uh, and the links to articles I've done as well. Uh, and uh, yeah, people can order the book from there or straight from akpress.org. And that book again is called No More Heroes, Grassroots Challenges to the Savior Mentality. Thank you so much for being with us on the Electronic Intifada podcast. That's it for the Electronic Intifada podcast. For news, information, cultural features and reviews, and pointed opinion and analysis, visit us online at electronicintifada.net, where you can also post comments and sign up for our daily email digest. Follow us on Twitter at Intifada. Radio stations are free to use this podcast, and if you're listening on iTunes, support the Electronic Intifada podcast by rating it and leaving a review. On behalf of all of us at the Electronic Intifada, Thank you for listening.